0: No, I got to go to New Jersey to preach at Jacob's Well Church, uh, another church in the Acts 29 network that we're connected to, and Pastor Gino from Real Life got to come here and fill my spot. So it was a great day of unity in the gospel and a reminder that Um, Jesus is connecting a bunch of churches to do a great kingdom work in this city as opposed to us just building our small little kingdom. So I I hope that you were encouraged in getting to see that. But while I was there, I did sincerely miss being here with you and was just reminded with fresh gratitude of how much I love this church and love you and what a joy it is to be here with you to worship God. Okay, um, can we talk about the Eagles for a second? Um, I know that it's only been a week. So I don't know if that's enough time. I know some of you are still coping with the wounds and have begun counseling to get through some of that. Um, But let's talk about it for a second. I know, and it's no secret that I'm not from Philadelphia, and so I didn't grow up an Eagles fan, but I want you to know that honestly, I did root for them this week, and I was honestly disappointed when they lost. Like many of you, I had nightmares of Vic's last interception. I woke up the next day really angry and bitter in a bad mood, and I finally realized what it's like to be a Philadelphian. Um, And I finally felt like, man, I fit into this city. I'm just angry for no reason. I feel like cursing. And then I was like, wow, this is what you guys go through. All right? Um... Let me remind you of better times. One of the really cool things that I got to do last year in 2010 was I got to go to the Eagles-Giants game. Not the Miracle in the Meadowlands, but the one here in South Philly. I was at that game. And I'll tell you... Going into the link is one of the most incredible exciting exhilarating experiences I've been to two football games, and I often say there are very few things that I've done that have been as much fun as Going to a football game right now of course. There's some things you're gonna have to overlook to have a good time, right? So undoubtedly you're gonna be baptized with beer. That's just a given somebody's gonna spill beer all over you Undoubtedly you're just gonna have to ignore all the profanity you're gonna hear for three hours So by the time you're done you feel like you've got to wash your own mouth with soap, just from all the stuff that you heard, right? The way they string together curses, it's almost poetic, like they were all English majors or something. And, and if everything they said about that referee's mom was true, <laughs> she sounded like a horrible lady, right? So you're gonna have to overlook some of that stuff. But if you can, it's actually an incredible experience, right? And, and the thing that sort of stands out to you when you go into the Link is the, the solidarity and the oneness and the unity of the place. You can almost feel it, right? Maybe sports isn't your thing. Maybe you've been to a packed concert with your favorite band or to a rally or some great cause. But when you walk into Lincoln Financial Field, you've got this sea of green jerseys because they're all wearing the same thing. And you've got 67,000 people, and they're rooting for the same thing and cheering at the same time, and they're united in their heart and purpose and mind, and they're longing for the same result and the same goal. They're united, right? Total strangers become brothers and sisters in a minute. I was high-fiving people, hugging people I had never met before. And that's just the way the stadium works. There was one guy who actually wore a Giants jersey to to the stadium. The entire crowd found him and booed him till he was escorted out of his seat. It was beautiful, right? (laughs) Because there's just this unity even against a common enemy. The whole thing is unbelievable. After every 10 yards, the announcer will come on and say, that's another Eagles, and 67,000 people will shout, first down. They cheer at the same time. They root at the same time. They boo at the same time. There's just this incredible unity and solidarity and oneness to the whole thing. That's the picture that comes to mind for me when I read a passage like Philippians 2. Because in the first seven verses, Paul's going to cast a vision, not for a stadium full of fans, but churches like this one, full of Christians, and the vision he's going to cast is, what would it look like if Jesus' church, even here at Seven Mile Road, were united? What would it look like if the men and women that gathered here were of one heart and one mind and of one accord, and they were rooting for the same thing and united around the same goal, longing for the same end, unified by the same purpose? What if they stood together against a common enemy and stood with each other against him? What if total strangers from different cultures and different backgrounds and different ethnicities could come here and become brothers and sisters in a moment because they were bonded by something far more great and grand and glorious than themselves? What if Jesus' church were united? What if that's what happened at Seven Mile Road? And that's exactly what Paul is going to push for in Philippians 2 and in the first 7 or 11 verses. What we're doing is we're continuing our series called Be the Church and what it looks like to not just go to church, but be the church and what the church is and what the church is about and what our identity as members of the church are. And today we're saying the church as united, the church as united, that what we are are is that we're united. And in these seven verses of show, what I want you to see is that unity in the church is achieved by Jesus and maintained by being humble like Jesus. I'll say that again. Unity in the church is achieved by Jesus and maintained by being humble like Jesus. Okay, let's pray and then we'll consider these words together. Our God, we ask that you would come by your Holy Spirit and speak to us. We ask that you would take these fists that we've raised in defensive postures to you and your word and we would humble ourselves and put them down. That we'd actually leave ourselves open and vulnerable to your word and allow it to do whatever it wants. Encourage us, convict us, rebuke us, admonish us, correct us. We pray that we, having put our hands down, would leave our chests and hearts open to you. That your word might penetrate deep down and that good fruit might be born. We pray that you would put away our pride and that we would hear this for what it is, the word of God, that we haven't gathered to hear the thoughts of a man, we have gathered to hear from God, and that you would empower us by your spirit to receive this as just that, your word to us, to this specific church, in this specific time, for your glory. We pray that you would unite us around the person and work of Jesus Christ. Help us now. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, let me give you some of the background, some of the context of this passage so that we can understand it better. When you get to the book of Philippians, you've got a man named Paul who is an apostle and a church planter, and he has planted this church at Philippi. Some years have passed since he first planted this church, and now he's actually locked up in a prison for his faith. He's, he's rotting in jail. And yet while he's in prison, his love for this church is still vibrant and strong. This is a baby church that he helped planted. He's, he's got this great connection to them. And so he pens this letter, writes this letter as an encouragement to this young baby church. And when you read the four chapters in Philippians, what you become aware of is that, by and large, this is a really healthy young church plant. By and large, there's a lot of good and godly things happening at Philippi. In fact, if you compare this church to some of the other churches that Paul has planted, you begin to see how healthy the Philippian church was. In a lot of ways, I want you to hear, this church reminds me of you, of Seven Mile Road, that there's a lot of good things and a lot of health to our baby church. When you read some of the other letters that Paul writes to the other baby churches, you begin to see what a mess some of these churches were. For example, you read his letter to the Galatians, and, and you begin to hear Paul talking about this young church that's now derailed from the gospel you've got this group of people that are advocating for circumcision, and they, they're going around telling everybody, if you're really going to be holy, well, you've got to, you know, snip the tip. And if you do that, then you follow Jesus, right? That Jesus plus, and whatever, circumcision in this case, baptism for someone else, the, the Holy Communion, whatever it is you add afterwards, and they've sort of perverted the gospel, They've added some other alien form of righteousness to the gospel. And they've muddied the waters and messed the whole thing up. And Paul will write to them and say, what happened? Where did you go wrong? Or you read the letter to the Corinthians. And again, you don't have to read far before you realize this place is a mess. In chapter 5, you find that one guy is sleeping with his stepmom in chapter 6, you find that Christians, rather than dealing with their issues, are bringing one another to the courts and suing one another. In chapter 11, you find that rather than coming to Jesus' table to take the body and the blood, they're fighting with one another and they're getting drunk at communion. So somebody's slipping into the line once and twice and three times and keeps knocking them back till it's just a mess. And then you come to the Philippians. Philippians. And you begin to see that, by and large, this is a really healthy church. Perhaps the healthiest church that Paul has planted. In Philippi, people are coming to know about Jesus. You read Acts 16 and you find the most unlikely of people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. In Philippi, they're overflowing with generosity. If you remember a few weeks back, we said that this church was in extreme poverty and severe affliction, and yet it resulted in an overflowing of generosity. They gave not because they were rich, but because they gave above and beyond their means because God had given to them. This is the kind of church that Paul will brag about to other churches. So in 1 Corinthians 8, he'll tell the baby church at Corinth to study Philippi and be like them and imitate them. And again, I say to you, in a lot of ways, this church reminds me of our church. Many of you are coming to know Jesus here, some for the first time, and growing in him. This church has overflowed with generosity. We just mentioned it a few minutes ago. In three weeks, $52,000. This is the kind of church that a pastor and planter would brag about and boast in to the glory of God to others. And yet for all that is right and all that is good at this church, there's a real danger lurking. There's a real danger that's lurking from without and from within that's threatening to unravel and ruin and destroy and disintegrate all the good that God had begun in this church. You can imagine if a group of Christians are going to get serious about living out the gospel in their city God's enemy, Satan, is not going to sit idly by and watch that happen. As his kingdom is colliding, the kingdom of God is colliding against his and and defeating his darkness, you can imagine he's not going to sit idly by. And so what you begin to hear at Philippi is that there's great obstacles and opposition and external pressure mounting against this baby church. There's a great deal of things that are sort of coming at them as they're ready to follow Jesus. In chapter 1, Paul is going to talk about rivals to his own mission and ministry that the Philippians need to know about. In chapter 3, you're going to find that Philippi itself has a circumcision party that is now coming and threatening to ruin the gospel. And it's such a serious threat that if you read chapter 3 in the first two verses, Paul is going to say, beware of those dogs. That's what he's going to call them. If a church planter calls you a dog, you know he's not messing around, right? He'll say to them, beware of those dogs, beware of those evildoers, beware of those mutilators of the flesh, because they're coming, and they're coming to ruin what God has begun here. In chapter 4, you're going to read, like we mentioned, that the economy in Philippi has tanked, and that produces anxiety. And so you're finding that Paul is going to have to address them and say, don't be anxious because that's what's happening. Their joy in Jesus is being robbed because everything around them is being taken. And so a great concern of Paul's throughout this whole letter is, how are you going to maintain joy through all that you're facing? So with all of this coming at the church, how are they going to stand? How are they going to survive? How are they going to endure? And so Paul will write to them, chapter 1, verse 27. Look at it with me. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to you and see you or am absent, I may hear, and listen to this, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for faith of the gospel. Here's what he's saying. With all that you're facing and all that you're about to endure and all that's coming and mounting against the church, how on earth are you going to survive unless you stand firm? firm together. And he gives this picture. He says, I want you to stand side by side, shoulder to shoulder, arms locked, locked in the trenches, advancing against this enemy together. How are you going to make it? With all that's coming your way, how are you going to survive if you don't stand and stand together? But if all the church at Philippi was facing was from without, it'd be one thing. But the problem at Philippi is that the problems are brewing also from within. The conflict's not just from without, the conflict is from within. It's not just what's coming at them, it's what's beginning to come from within them. And you begin to read in chapter 4 that Paul is going to actually call out two women. He's going to address them and and in front of the whole church he's going to say, I plead with Euodia and I have no idea how to pronounce the other name skintishy, schenectady, something like that, right? And he calls these two women out and he says, I plead with you to agree in the Lord. Here were two Christian women, and if you read chapter four, you find that they did exactly what Paul had said. They stood side by side with him in the work of the gospel. And I know this stuff never happens now, but back then Christians disagreed with one another. And you had these two Christian women that didn't get along. And they had conflict. And it's not this interpersonal squabble that's just between me and her off to the side. It's so important that the entire church's unity is at stake because of what's going on between these two women. Enough that Paul will have to name them and address them to the whole church and say, I plead with you. Get them to agree in the Lord. So the problems at Philippi are not just what's coming at them, but what's brewing from within them. Not just conflicts from without, but conflict from within. And with all of this on his mind, as he's thinking about this baby church and all the good that has been done there, Paul writes Philippians 2 and the first seven verses. Let me read it for you again. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. With all of this in his mind, Paul is going to speak on unity in these seven verses. And what he's going to do is he's going to elaborate on the concept he began in verse 27 of chapter 1, what we already looked at, and he's going to expound on it further. And the first thing I want you to hear is that unity in the church is achieved by Jesus. Hear that again. Unity in the church is achieved by Jesus. Here's what I want you to hear. Seven Mile Road, our unity does not rest in Seven Mile Road. The unity of Seven Mile Road Church does not rest in Seven Mile Road Church. It's not something for us to achieve. It's not something for us to attain. It's not something for us to work for and strive after and get after it and get. But rather, it's something that Jesus has already achieved for us. Our unity does not come when all of us decide, you know what, we're going to become unity conscious and really get after this thing together, and we're going to get it. But rather, our unity is something that already has been achieved for us, attained for us. It's not a work that you will do, but something that Jesus worked and did for you. That's why in this passage, the conversation is not going to begin with what Philippi needs to do to get unity. The conversation is going to begin rather with what Jesus has already done for them and to them and in them. And that be the basis and the ground for everything else he will say. Unity is not something we achieve. It's something that Jesus achieved for us. Look at the text with me. He begins by saying, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. All right, stop there for a second. In that first section, Paul begins this section by saying, So if there is, and then he rattles off four clauses, if there is any encouragement, any comfort, any participation, and, and I need you to know it's not that he's so much asking a question that he doesn't know the answer to. So, so is there any of this? If anything, it's a rhetorical question that he already knows the answer to and that he anticipates that everyone he asks will know the answer to as well. He's just expecting that as he says these things, everyone's just going to nod their head in agreement. In fact, this could almost be translated not so if there is, but rather since there is this and this and this, then this is what I want you to be about. So everything he's going to say about unity is founded on what has already been done for them and in them and to them. Like I could ask you, any of you that have been at Seven Mile Road and connected to this community, these brothers and sisters, anyone here feel any encouragement in Christ? Anyone feel any encouragement from the the good news that Jesus has forgiven your sins? That you have Jesus in this life and Jesus in the life to come. Any encouragement from being united with God and united with his people. How about any comfort from his love? Anyone here feel any comfort from the, the, the truth that God loves you and that he's demonstrated that love for you in this, that while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. And that now that comfort has come into your heart and you've received the comfort of God and his people around you. How about any participation in the Spirit? Anyone feel like they've felt the fellowship of being one with God through the Spirit and one with His people through that same Spirit? That you've enjoyed participation with God and His people? How about any affection or sympathy? Anyone here feel like you've been through a rough patch or a hard season and found brothers and sisters here to pray with you and love with you? And, and be a shoulder for you, and wrap their arms around your shoulder. Anyone to walk with you, to remind you that God loves you, and has sent his people to do the same. Paul's expectation is that as he says this to any church, he would just find the whole room going, Yep, absolutely. Yes, of course. And that's what he wants to say. Since this is a slam dunk, no-brainer. Since this is yes and amen in Jesus... And since this has all been done for you and in you and to you, now let's talk about unity. Because everything that he's going to say about unity is based on what Jesus has already done. Look at verse 5 for a second. He's going to say, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Another translation for that, another way that other Bibles put that is, Let your bearing towards one another arise out of your life in Christ. Hear that again. Let your bearings toward one another, let how you relate to one another, arise out of your life in Christ. That is, let how you relate to each other come out of who you are in Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. Who you as an individual and we as a corporate body, based on who we are in Christ, let's relate to one another. What I'm laboring to try and say is this. Seven Mile Road, our unity, does not rest in ourselves. It rests in better ground and on better soil. It's it's being built on a better foundation, namely Jesus and his gospel. We're united because of what he has done and because of who he is. Every imperative that Paul will give in this passage is based on the indicatives of who Jesus is and what he's done. That's just smarty pants language for every charge, every command, every call that Paul is going to give to the church is based on what Jesus has already done. So, Seven Mile Road, let me remind you of the gospel and of what Jesus has done. The gospel says that we were sinners. And God, in his great love for us, sent Jesus Christ to the earth. And the God-man came to the earth and lived a good and righteous life and then died a substitutionary death in our place and for our sins. The night before he died, let me read you the prayer that he prayed. He's standing in a garden. He's about to die the very next day. And he looks forward into history, thinking of this church, and he prays this. He says, Father, I do not ask for these only, and he's talking about his disciples, but also for all those who will believe in me through their word. Who's that? Who are all the people that are going to believe in the gospel because of the word the disciples preached? That's us, down to this day. And so he's going to think in that garden of you and pray this prayer. He says, I pray that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. He goes on to say, I pray that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one. He's about to die the next day. And the last prayer he wants to offer to the Father for you is that you might be one. And he's got the nerve to not just pray for unity. He goes so far as to pray, let them be one like we're one. Let the unity that the church experiences and enjoys be the kind of unity that the Trinity experiences and enjoys. You think of how God is one. There's no civil wars within the Godhead. There's no gossip and backblighting and slander. No power plays. No conceit. No rivalry. No faction of teams. No spirit and son ganging up against the Father. There's complete unity. And Jesus would have the audacity to pray that we would be one like that. That even as the Godhead is one, we would have that kind of unity. Now, either... That's the most naive, absurd, idealistic dreamer prayer you've ever prayed. Because I would ask, how on earth is that possible? And I'll tell you, Jesus died to make it possible. He died to make it possible. It's an impossible prayer. And yet Jesus died to make it possible. Let me remind you of the gospel. The gospel says that we, by nature and by choice, were in sin. Ephesians 2 will say that we were separated from God and separated from his people, right? There was this great break. If you get into a fight with your girlfriend, there's a break in the relationship. And the scriptures say we had a cosmic break with God because of our sin. And not just we were away from God, we were at enmity with God. John 8, Jesus will actually say that we were children of the devil, That we were languishing under and serving and suffering under a wicked dad while all the while being separated from a good one. And then one of the metaphors that the scriptures use to describe the gospel is adoption. Think of that with me. We've talked through this before, but I want you to be reminded of it. Some of us guys who were in the theology track talked through it again yesterday, and our hearts were rejoicing again at this truth. The truth of the gospel is, while we were at enmity and far away from God and under a wicked dad, the Father sent the Son into the world so that we might be adopted. And what happened when we were? Remember with me, what happened when we were adopted? It's like this one pastor, Mark Dever, said, and we've said this before. If you were adopted by the Smiths, what happened? You became a Smith. From that day on, you lived in the Smith house, and you went to the Smith family dinners, and you shared a room with the Smith kids. When the teacher called out Smith, you raised your hand like your older brother in front of you, like your younger sister after you. You were a smith, and it's not that you decided to play the part of a smith, but rather that someone walked into the orphanage, looked at you, and said, You will be a smith. And on that day, you were. And you became a child, and you became a sibling. So that dad now became your father, and these other kids of dad's became your brothers and sisters. And that's what happened in the gospel. Jesus died to not only give you relationship with God so that you might be united to him. Jesus died to give you unity with one another. It's not a a naive prayer. It's a prayer that required death to make happen, and he did it. He died so that we would be brothers and sisters with one another. And we've said it before. How would adoption work if you said, Dad and I are good but I don't want dad's other kids. How would it grieve a father to see his children say, we like you, but we don't like one another? No, every father longs that his children would be united. And so it is with God. That's again why I want to say to you, Seven Mile Road, our unity does not rest on anything we do but on what Jesus has already done for us. I hope this is the most freeing thing in the world, that that we're not going to become united because we're going to get after this thing. We already are united because Jesus did for us. He died so that we might be united. Unity in the church is achieved by Jesus. If that's true, then the logical question that's got to be brewing in your heart is, what do we do? If he did that for us and accomplished that for us, what do we do? Great question. And the answer is that while we don't achieve unity, we're called to maintain it. In in Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul will write to another church plant and he'll say to them, Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Hear that again. He doesn't say, create unity in the spirit, in the bond of peace. He says, be eager to maintain unity in the spirit, in the bond of peace. So what's our call? Our call is to maintain, to preserve, to promote the unity that Jesus died to achieve among us. How do we do that? Paul will tell us. Look at verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. He'll keep going, but pause with me for a second there. Paul is going to say, what are you to do to preserve and promote and maintain unity? He's going to say, unity in the church is achieved by Jesus and maintained by being humble like Jesus. What are you to do? Well, Paul starts with what you're not to do. All right, hear that again. He starts with what you're not to do. He says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Here's what I want you to hear. If there's one thing that's going to destroy and unravel and undo the unity that Jesus died to achieve, it's pride. And if there's one thing that's going to preserve it and promote it and maintain it, it's humility. If there's one thing that's going to destroy unity in the church, it's pride. Every person coming in with their own agenda and their own opinions and their own ideas for their own glory until everything is broken up into teams and divisions and factions and the rest. I don't know what your church background was, right? Let me tell you about mine. I grew up in the church and by and large I had a really good experience at church. No scandals, no financial stealing, no adulteries, no sexual misconduct, the kind of things that just rip churches apart. None of that. Preserved from it all. But let me tell you what was commonplace for my church experience. Disunity. Factions. Teams. Conflict. You had these meetings where the entire church would come together and all the kids knew this was just a time where the different team leaders would come out and the different teams would show up and they'd have it out. And that just became the way that it was. It was just accepted as the norm and nobody called it for the mockery of the gospel that it was. And here's what I want you to hear. One generation later, we are not immune from being Or doing the same exact thing please do not be tempted to think that because we've got good music or good preaching that we're above any of that all of that could happen right here because one of the beautiful things that's happening among us is we're growing but one of my friends pastor Matt in Boston he always says more people as good as it is just means more sinners and more sinners just means more sin Right? Instead of one relationship now, we've got 50 and miscommunication and misunderstandings and, and slighted feelings and slighted words and, and all of that can just create havoc. For example, Charlie and Julie are about to have another baby. They're about to go to three kids. Back in the day, 10 years ago, it was just Charlie and Julie that could annoy one another. Now there's Charlie and Julie and Charlie and Shayla and Charlie and Jalen and Charlie and this new kid and, and, and Julie. And you see how it goes? It's not addition anymore. I, I did the math. In their home, there's going to be ten relationships for conflict. Not four, not five. That's the way it works. In a church like ours with more people as good as it is, it just means more personal agendas and more opinions and more ideas and, and more personal uh, pushing forward your own agenda until it breaks off into teams and rivalries and conceit and all the rest. If there's one thing that's going to destroy unity in the church, it's pride. And don't say don't sit here and say that can that must never or that will never happen here. But rather resolve with me that must never happen here. Hear that? Don't sit here thinking that can never happen here. But resolve with me, Jesus died for our unity. That must never happen here. Pray for your leadership that they would have the courage that if gossip or malice or teams ever rears its head, they would with courage move to extinguish it. Because the unity of this place is not something we built up. It's something Jesus died to give us. And if pride can destroy it, Paul will say, you know what's going to preserve it and promote it and maintain it? Humility. Let each of you count others more significant than yourselves. Look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Humility. You know what? Humility is not. Humility is not now you starting to talk bad about yourself. Right? As you count others more significant than yourselves, humility is not talking bad about yourself or false modesty. Right? There's a lot of modest people. Very few humble people. I know. Right? You'll say, I'm bad at something, and all you want is for a chorus of, no, you're not, no, you're not, no, you're not. Right? Because even if you're falsely modest, you know what you love? The conversation's still about you. Everyone's still talking about you, and you love that. That's not humility. Right? You've got pride on one side. Pride says, I can't stop looking at myself because I'm awesome. But then you've got insecurity on the other side, and insecurity says, I can't stop looking at myself because I'm awful. But you know who both people can't stop looking at? Themselves. It's the same thing, just expressed in two different ways. One says, I can't stop being enamored because of all my greatness. And the other says, I can't stop being enamored because of all my flaws. And the gospel addresses both. The gospel goes to the proud and says, Do not consider yourself in light of everyone else and compare yourself to the other brother and stand that you find yourself standing a foot taller. View yourself in light of God and his holiness and see your sin and do not be proud because you are far more sinful than you know. But the gospel will come to the insecure and say, listen, God knows your flaws and your weaknesses and loves you desperately despite them. And you are not standing trying to achieve your own identity. You've received one from Jesus. You don't have to work for your own reputation. You have a good one in Jesus. And God has the highest opinion of you in the universe. And it's not because of anything you did. So don't despair. The gospel says it's not pride or insecurity, humility. Humility is not talking bad about yourself. It's it's actually being freed to not talk about yourself at all. It's not looking down on yourself. It's it's being free to not look at yourself at all. It's being free to allow someone else to take center stage for two seconds. To allow your eyes to drift from the mirror for two seconds long enough to see someone else. To count someone else as more significant than yourselves. And to look out not only for your own interests, but the interests of others. As I've been thinking through this passage what's been working its way into my heart is this is not a hard passage to explain. It's not a hard passage to understand. It's not a hard passage to apply. It's just a really hard passage to live. It's just a really hard passage to live. Look not only for your own interests but for the interests of others. So when you come in at the end of a long day and your three-year-old comes and you just want to sit in front of the TV for 10 minutes And she says, Dad, Dad, can you play with me? What would it look like to not look out for your own interests, but for the interests of another? Or your wife, who has watched that three-year-old all day and now just wants one normal adult conversation. But you want to tune out because you've worked your own day. What would it look like to not look out for your own interests, but the interests of others? Or you're standing at CVS and you're waiting to pay, but the girl behind the register can't put your stuff through because she's on the phone. And whatever she's talking about has her upset, but you can't stop looking at your watch. And why won't she do her job? By the way, all of these are things just from the last week that I've failed at. What would it look like for me to take two seconds to count her as more significant than myself and to think to myself whatever it is that she's talking about has her so upset she can't even do her job and she's got an entire line waiting with all of us looking at her. What would it look like to count her as more significant than myself long enough to pray for her whatever it may be in that moment rather than to puff up with pride and see myself and my needs and my time as more important than hers. Do not look out for your own interests, but for the interests of others. What would it look like if this church did that at home and in our church and in the world and in the city that God has called us on mission to? So where do we go? Where do we go for a picture of what that would look like, a vision of how to live that out in flesh and blood? Paul will tell us. Let's look to the end of this passage. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. I want to read you a quote. How are we going to do this? How is Seven Mile Road ever going to get after this thing? What does it look like? Where are we to look? Hear this quote from a man named A.W. Tozer. He says, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos, all tuned to the same fork, are automatically tuned to each other? They are not of one accord by being tuned to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. Do you hear what he's saying? I have no idea how music works, but I think what he's saying is, if you've got a hundred pianos in the room, you don't pit them against each other. You tune them all to the same fork. And as each one is tuned to the same fork, they're in tune with each other. 67,000 fans at Lincoln Financial Field. How do you get them united? Not by getting them all to turn to each other and talk, but as they look away from themselves and together look at something better and more grand than themselves, they find that they're drawn closer to each other. It will not be by us diverting our eyes to ourselves. It will be as each of us looks to Jesus and begun, begins to become humble like him, that we will find that we are united with each other. Look to him, right? Him who was God before the foundations of the world, but in humility, because he looked not only for his own interests, but for yours, but was born in a barn for your sake. H- him who looked out for the interests of others throughout his life, right? A few weeks ago, if you remember, Dennis preached on the, the night before Jesus dies. He has a meal with his friends, And remember, Dennis reminded us, if there's ever a night to look inward, to take care of yourself, to have that meal, to have someone serve you, it's that night. And on that night, he got up. He was going to give his life the next day, and on that night, he got up, looking out for the interests of others and not his own, and got on his knees like a slave, like no self-respecting Jew would do, and began to wash their feet. And he gets up and he says, if I did that, You ought to do the same. And verse 8 will say it's not just his birth or his life, but he humbled himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross. You look at that Jewish man named Jesus hanging on the cross naked, and it is the most humiliating, humbling sight your eyes would ever see. And that's what God did, because he looked out not for his own interests, but for the interests of others. If you struggle with humility, I want to give you one last thought, and then we'll wrap up. When this passage ends, in verses 9 through 11, it's going to say that there's a day coming, a day when the humble Lord Jesus, who was born in the barn, who washed the feet of his servants and disciples, who hung naked on a cross when he was resurrected, and there's a day coming when every knee will bow before him and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So here's here's the thought that's been working its way into my heart as I pursue humility. I want people to think of me. I want people to speak well of me. I want my name in lights. But here's the thought that Philippians 2 is going to end with. There's a day coming. And on that day, no one will talk about a J. No one will talk about the sermons that I preached or the churches that I planted. No one will talk about us. No one will talk about your accomplishments or your accolades or your achievements. No one will mention the titles that you earned, the degrees that came after your name. No one will talk about the promotions or the stuff that you bought or the things that you did. No one will remind you of your successes or your flaws because on that day, every face will look to him. And every shoulder will be pointed to him, and every eye will behold him, and every knee will be bent before him, and every mouth will speak of him, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And on that day we will be of one heart and of one mind in one accord humbly before Jesus singing of his great name. So then let's live this day in light of that one. Let's pray.